So when you find out that your parents are going to be sent away, what was the next step for you and your siblings? How did you, so you said you found out because your mom called you that they were going to the storehouse, but what was it like for you to be taken to a new home? So because I was the oldest kid, I had helped raise my siblings starting at eight or younger, <laughs> but my mom confided in me a lot and I was, she actually asked me, which is very rare in the FLDS, but she kind of threw ideas at where we would want to be, you know, and I was so frustrated that they sent my parents away that I wouldn't help her. I wouldn't give them their any answers or anything. Like I just like, whatever, do what you're going to do. You know, I just wanted to stay out of it. It was, it was too much, you know, and of course, automatically my mind goes back to the 12 year old that was told, you know, someday you may have to live without your parents, you know, and so you were just trying to be obedient and do what the church wanted you to do at that point? Absolutely. And, you know, and I knew no different. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about where you ended up. Where did they send you? What happened to you and your siblings? We were placed with my mom's half-sister, Lola. And she was an elite member. We, they were actually, we were actually told we had to be placed with an elite member because they had to have a priest, somebody that held the priesthood, a man that held the priesthood, and they men could no longer hold priesthood unless they were an elite member. We had to have a priesthood man over us, and they were called a caretaker. And a caretaker in this sense is they were responsible for enforcing religious, religion, you know, religious rules and making sure that we were at classes and at meetings, and that was the definition of the caretaker, they're responsible for the religious. As far as care, they had no interest in that. That was just supposed to be through the storehouse. We would stick our monthly orders in for food. And I mean, I lived in a house of 26 people and we would get like a dozen eggs, a head of lettuce, you know, maybe a pint of milk, a couple bags of rice. And that was supposed to last us a week. And that was very normal for our food ration. So that's true, a dozen eggs in three days. And I'm not exaggerating. We have to buy like five dozen eggs for our little family of four for every two weeks. So I can't even imagine trying to feed that many people. And did you, even if you ask for more, that's all they would send you? Yeah. So they would just get the food, which wasn't very much. And, and just divided among the whole community, no matter how many people, just whether you had 50 or 20, you still got the same amount of food. Okay. So you didn't, when you say you put in a request for food, you didn't put in, Hey, this is what I need for my family. You just said food, please. No, we did actually. They, they did have a list that we would fill out of items that were supposedly supposed to be at the storehouse, but it was rare that we ever got anything oh. that we wrote on that. It was just, where did they get the food at the storehouse from? It was, people were taking their food carts and buying food and taking it to the storehouse. Um, and then a lot of canned foods, which was being done by the kids. I'll refer you to Leandra's story yeah. for that. And, you know, kids and adults, I was there. And, you know, the way that they really kept control of me is if I stepped out of line, they would take that out on my younger siblings and, you know, I, I had raised these kids, you know, in a way I was, I was a mom to them, you know, like, and I, it did, it hurt, you know, 
for them to hurt my siblings, my kids, you know, like, yeah. Wait, I'm sorry. No, I just want to point out, you said food card. <laughs> so when you say food card, you mean food stamps through the government? Yes, food stamps. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah. I, so, I think that's one thing a lot of people, or at least I know from the outside, we had seen these things about like food stamp fraud or what was going on. Did you know about what was happening or how those funds were used? Or do you mind telling our viewers a little bit about why so many people in the community were able to get food stamps? Absolutely. I definitely saw that. I mean, and sometimes these families that had, you know, these men that had four or five wives. Yeah. They had four or five food cards because, you know, each wife could be with them and their kids on government help so when you received these food cards or these food stamps they were you were expected to hand them over did you hand over like the card itself or did you have to go shopping and get it to the storehouse like the government's giving this money hoping that it's feeding these children right which like i said from outside communities within utah there's a lot of outrage when they found out that this wasn't going to feed children as it was supposed to be what was the process like when you guys received your cards and what did the church expect you to do with them So we were required to go out and buy food, like Costco was utilized a lot, um, and make stuff, make granola and stuff. And then we were to turn that all into the storehouse. I cannot 100% say where that was going, but I do know it was not coming back. I was not getting the food that I was watching going in there from all these families. My dad never did it. He was a non-member. He's like, he was on food stamps, but... He, he took it and used it for his non-member kids and him, you know. And so it, this is just more things that I've seen happen. And I helped fill some of the food orders in the storehouse. So I would see some of the food go in and they would take it into a different building and we never saw it again. So I don't know rightly what was happening with that food, but it was not being served to the community or to the kids. Did they ever say why it all had to go to the storehouse to be distributed rather than you just taking care of the individual families? It had to go to the storehouse to be consecrated. Okay, so be, to be prayed over. Yes. So that was their excuse to get all the food. Yes. They tell you that it had to be prayed over. And then did you at any time or anyone that you know of keep some of the food? Just kind of get sick of it? Well, you said your dad did. He, he didn't give it to the storehouse. Is that right? Yeah, my dad didn't give it to the storehouse, but we could make excuses for him because he never was a member. He never was a part of that. But if you didn't, then you might become a non-member, right? And lose right. your family and everything. Okay. Right. Gotcha. So he wasn't too concerned about it because he was already in the non-member category. Right. I see. Yeah, you got to wonder all that food was going. Maybe it was going to these elite members. I mean, I have my wonderments, but because I wasn't an elite member, I... I don't know. No, I didn't see it. I want to say we saw a documentary. I'm trying to remember which one because sometimes they blur together a little bit. A lot. When we watch so many, that some of the storehouses, like from compounds in Colorado, I want to say, mm-hmm. that got abandoned later, had huge storage units. Do you remember this? Yeah. Huge storage units of canned goods and all sorts of food that got abandoned there, like thousands of pounds of food that never got used. It was just there for when the second coming was going to happen. It looked like the, the people were store. received a phone call and had to leave for some reason, and they just left it all behind. Yeah, I actually know quite a bit about that. Really? I was re- on the crew that was required to pack that in the leap. Um, me and my younger siblings, um, I have pictures of it. 
which we weren't supposed to take, but I'm glad I was a bit rebellious now. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yes, we were, and, and they were, they're using, they use the kids. I mean, they, I know I wasn't a kid. I was 21 at the time, but my siblings were 15, 14, you know, 10, 8, 7, 5. And we were required to be there all day. And we would, well, first we spent months bottling the fruit. And then when we, we were required to put them in these huge crates and just fill it with wheat. It, they were, it was supposed to be earthquake proof. And we did bins, hundreds of bins of that. And it was getting sent away. And we were watching, you know, we were starving and we were watching these bins of wheat and fruit, which I would have loved to get my, to eat. I mean, even that would have been better than nothing, but we were watching them loaded on trucks and take it away. And that was in Colorado? That was here in Hilldown, Colorado oh, City, okay. but we were packing it. And then I assume that they were shipping it to Colorado because later that same, you know, people have described to me what was left on the compound in Colorado and it's exactly what we were packing. Wow. So to see all the hard work you put into it, starving yourselves because you weren't getting food, and then to see that it was just all abandoned in some warehouse, that must have been frustrating. Absolutely. Wow. But honestly, not so much for myself, but I mean, for the kids. I mean, those kids, they get breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning after they got up at 5.30, go to work. They would work seven, eight hours sometimes, no lunch break, come home to class. They were given a snack before bedtime if it was available and put to bed. And then it would start over the next day. So a snack instead of dinner? I mean, you you couldn't consider a one ounce of mush or grill a meal. So I would call it a snack, which often even their breakfast consisted of that one, maybe two ounces of wheat mush. So did you have different jobs where you were a little bit older than the other children? Did you have similar jobs to them working alongside them? Or did they have specific jobs for girls in your age group? So they did have specific jobs for girls in my age group, but I absolutely refused to be separated from my younger siblings. Good for you. So I went with them to protect them as much as I could under the situation. You know, I couldn't protect them from the child labor because of lack of education, lack of knowledge of how to get help. I mean, now that I know what I know, I would do things a lot different, you know, but. But how could you know? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Wow. So you were with your siblings the whole time? Yes. So you were separated from your parents? Yes. What was, I mean, I know this is a lot, but what did this look like? So you were, your parents were sent away to repent. First of all, what were you told about your parents? Did you expect to ever see them again? My parents were, after we moved with our half-aunt, actually two half-aunts, they were two separate women, Marie and Lola, both half-aunts. We were placed in a home under those two mothers, and the very day that our parents drove away, they gathered us in to the living room. Uh, the priesthood caretaker came. His name was Matthew. And they went over a new list of rules. Um, they had us get rid of all pictures of our parents, made sure that we did not have any phones. I did have a phone that was connected to, you know, my parents had paid for it for a couple of years before they'd been sent away, but they cut it off. They cut that phone off when they were sent away because they believed that they had to have no contact in order to repent. So I had 
a skeleton of a phone. I, you know, it wasn't connected, it, but it was, you know, my aunts, this caretaker had told my parents, yeah, we'll get her a phone. You know, she'll be able to contact other people in the community. But no, the very minute they left, they, they took pictures, phones, vehicles. My parents had left me with three different vehicles. They immediately took titles and keys away from me and siblings as well. I mean, like I had a six and eight year old little brother and they were going through a lot. They just been through a death, so to speak, of both parents. Okay. And I suddenly wasn't allowed in their room because this was a boy's room. I mean, I literally remember waking up at three in the morning and going in there, locking the door and just holding them and rocking them. And when I got found out, you know, they, they took the brunt of it. They punished them physically. They punished your brothers? Yes. Because, because, because you were hugging because them? Because I touched them. And they're, they're babies. They're six, six and eight. 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 That's so little. Our little girl's six. And I can't imagine them not having, they're not having comfort. And, you know, you know and, and up to this point, these kids were used to me caring for them. Suddenly they couldn't come in my room and find me if they needed something. Or, you know, I wasn't a mother. That was inappropriate. They had to go find Lola and, and, or Marie, and there was absolutely no compassion there. And immediately, right off, the abuse started. You know, one day, uh, this was the older two of the youngest boys, but they were 10 and 9 around there. They trapped mud in the house, you know, and they whipped them with a belt for for tracking mud in the house. You know, and... I, I didn't experience physical abuse like that with my parents, you know, and so it was just so stunning to watch this happen to my own siblings, my own, you know, kids in a way that I, I almost played like gaslighting games with myself that this isn't real, you know, it was just like, how could this be real? I couldn't comprehend it, you know, and, and I didn't know how to fight anything like that. I'd never been exposed to physical abuse like that. And to see your own siblings being punished this way, being treated this way from the people that were supposed to be protecting them and helping them. The, their new quote-unquote mothers. Caretakers. Or caretakers. What? Yeah, both. I mean, it's... And the caretaker, yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, and another thing that I want to point out is it wasn't just one child at a time. I mean, this was going on six different directions at the same time with all six siblings. I mean, they would take the girls somewhere on a project to the storehouse. And literally there was one day that my six-year-old little brother disappeared. And I was like begging somebody to call around and find him and nobody would help me. They're just like, you know, the mother knows where he is. And, you know, come to find out hours later that, one of the other adults in the house had just taken him on a storehouse project, you know, and I hated this. I hated that they were separating the kids and starting to tear us apart, you know, and it, it, it was really stunning at first, you know, and as time progressed, the two years that we were with them, which I can talk about more about too, but it was a really slow process to gain that courage and to gain that capability to, stand up to get my siblings to trust me again. You know, I mean, because to them, they were just put in this home and I abandoned them because now suddenly they're being pulled away from me. You know, to, to gain their trust enough to come together 
where we were tied in a circle that Lola couldn't penetrate it anymore. Then I was finally able to move him out from under Lola, even though she was still showing up, but at least out of the home. Yeah. So leading up to that moment where you were able to kind of take them out of the situation to some extent, what what were some of the things that, I mean, you mentioned whipping. Uh, you mentioned not being fed enough, not enough food. What were some other things that were going on? So it was not only Lola or Marie that was being abusive in the home. It was other adults in the home, uh, Lola's stepdaughter. And she was 22 at the time. You know, a Pacific incident. She tried running the back of a hammer through the skull of my eight-year-old little brother's I watched it happen, and a mother, the, Marie, was standing there videoing her, and they did nothing. They did nothing about that. If I wouldn't have stopped that hammer from going into his skull, she would have killed him. And she was so mad that I took that hammer, and, I mean, I reported it to the caretaker, and he's just like, okay, I'll talk to him. It won't happen again, but that was the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, you know, a few days later, something else like that would happen, you know. I watched Lola abuse her own kids, like literally take a six, seven, six, seven-year-old by the end of their long braid and drag them all the way up three flights of stairs just by their hair. Or like um, one day I was looking out the window and I saw her literally kick her 10-year-old child out of, the ve- out of a moving vehicle, pulling out of the driveway, just like yeeted her out with her foot. Oh my gosh. Um, so so this wasn't just being done to her relatives. This was being done to her own children. Yes, yes. You know, pulling of ears and hair was every everyday occurrence. Like, I mean, it came to the point where I quit fighting the hair and the ear pulling because it was all I could do. You know, that was so bad, but it was all I could do to try to keep, you know, like hammers going through skulls or you know, my 10-year-old brother, I have a picture of a bite through his hand. One of the mothers? It was Rachel. It was this 22-year-old. Like 22 bit. An 8-year-old. An 8-year-old's hand. I have a picture of it. It has her teeth marks in his hand. Bloody teeth marks. So she was just a wild animal. I mean... Absolutely. I mean, I have seen her eyes glow red. That is how do you have- upset... Do you have any idea how she became this way? Like, what what would have caused something in her life to get to this point? Lola came into her life about when she was about four years old, and I believe that Lola's abuse began with her, with the kids before her own kids. So she was raised and saw this abuse from a very young age and just turned into the same type of... Yeah. Oh, my gosh. At 21... Did they try to physically abuse you as well? Like, would they try to, I mean, I know you said you were considered a child, but obviously you're still a lot older, bigger than a six or eight year old that they're trying to drag. Did they try to physically abuse you? So at first, no. So if I stepped out of line, automatically the abuse was pointed toward the kids. The kids would be punished for it. Later, when I could see a situation coming on where Lola or Rachel were upset, I would purposely say something that would piss them off or something so that they would come after me versus the kid. So later, yes, the last like half a year I was with them. Yes. I experienced some physical assault 
bite in the back of the head and being slapped around and stabbed with scissors and I mean, just yeah. I, I don't... <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, you experienced everything that they were experiencing. Eventually, it sounds like, as far as the abuse goes, in an effort to try to protect them from it. Yes. So you were purposely taking the blame or trying to get the attention drawn to you to protect your siblings. Absolutely. I mean, like I've had a five gallon pan of boiling water thrown at me. My little brothers came in out of the snow, got snow on the floor and she blew up at them. I don't remember what I said to her, but she picked up that pan of boiling water and threw it at me, but it was still worth it because she would have done that to the little kids. You know, the, you know, I think by then they were like, eight and nine, the youngest two. Through all this, was there ever a point where you thought maybe it's worth calling my parents or were you still so deeply convinced of eternal salvation that the fear was too much? So we were told that if we contacted our parents or thought about them, that their repentance would start over. And, you know, after a year and a half in, you're sitting there thinking, I don't want to go for another year and a half without them. You know, and so you... I hung on to this hope that, you know, it could be any day, any day, any day, you know, and things just got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, they were keeping me so physically and mentally exhausted. I mean, I'd like to explain to you a little bit of my daily schedule. So I was required to be up by three o'clock in the morning um, and dressed. And I had to be dressed, completely calm. And this wasn't just brushing out your hair. I mean, I had to have the poof, the braids, everything by 430 in the morning. And we had what we called a caregiver's prayer. It was a meeting with basically the little bit older kids that would help care for the younger kids in the home. We'd have a meeting and a prayer. And then I was required to get all of the kids up, help them read their Bibles, help them read Warren's Revelations, which was also a part of mine when I got up at three in the morning. I had to do my reading. Get them completely ready and to class by six o'clock in the morning. Um, We would have a good hour of class pause for breakfast for just a few minutes. And then during school, the school months, then they were required to go to school, start school at seven. That was two hours of listening to Warren's morning class. That's how that started. Mm. And then a little bit of math, maybe some reading. And then we would go right into priesthood history around noon. And then I would have to listen to home ec classes, which is more of Warren's teachings. I had to make sure that I listened to a good three to four hours of that. By then, it's class time around 7.30 or 8. So we had to listen to more of Warren's teachings. Class time, then I had to get their bed, kids to bed by 9 o'clock. I had to, you know, help them with their reading, help them make sure they have their showers, get them to bed before 9 o'clock. Then I had to go do the same for myself. I had to make sure I did my personal reading of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, Warren's teachings, and be to bed by 10. After about like five months, I finally convinced them to give me a phone. And they gave me a phone with only the mothers in the home and the caretaker. And she also had a code on it. So I couldn't call anybody but those three people. And then later when we moved to Colorado, then my brother Nolan, he's just younger than me. At that point, he had been out on the cruise and he was work cruise. He was making money. He snuck and bought me a phone. And so I also was sleeping with that phone literally in my hand or under my head or something because it's. Lola would have even saw it. She would have taken it immediately. And it it felt like my only lifeline. You know, there was a few people I would call exclusively in the FLDS, but I didn't even dare 
talk to even people in the FLDS. I mean, Lola made sure that from the minute our parents were sent away, we were even isolated from cousins and relatives, even within the FLDS that we had known prior to our parents being sent. We were completely isolated with her. So what was the final straw? It took time to gain my siblings' trust. And, you know, this was after being trafficked to several homes between Arizona and then Colorado. And, you know, I just like to say again, the, the way that they trafficked me was literally when we moved to Colorado, they abducted the four little kids and left. And I didn't want to never see them again, you know, so I felt like I had no choice but to follow to protect them. You know, and I mean, this was after a year, a year of, you know, this physical abuse that I had set and watched happen. You know, I could only imagine what would happen if I wouldn't, right. wasn't there. Yeah, if you weren't there to protect your siblings, right. who knows if they would even survive it. Right. So once we got to Colorado, Lola would leave. She'd take her kids and leave for weeks and months at a time. And during that time, I just had time to just, it, it was... I mean, she would literally leave us without food and we had no vehicle. No, we didn't know anybody. We were literally isolated in the middle of Colorado Springs. You know, everybody outside of the church is really scary. You know, we didn't dare ask for help or anything, but just her being gone felt so much better and just more at peace. You know, the kids were, you know, I started getting more sleep. Honestly, I would just sleep in without anybody knowing, you know, and being able to process mentally and physically start to think about, you know, this is not okay. And we lived in Colorado for a good eight months. And I constantly was begging, just let me move with a different mother or something, you know, move, you know, I was telling the caretaker, I do not like Lola. I don't want to be with her. And I can't remember exactly what led up to it, but something pissed Lola off that I did. I, for some reason, I'm not recalling the exact moment. And she's like, okay, fine, just move out. And I immediately, she said it sarcastically, but I immediately took my chance. I, mm. I called my brother. He had had a job and I was just like, we have permission to move out. And he's like, okay, rented a house. And believe me, it wasn't clear till after we were moved and had a contract that he found out that I kind of manipulated the situation, but we were already out. So there wasn't much that could be done. I mean, good for you though. And to, to be able to do that. I mean, because at this point you probably still feared what could happen to you all spiritually. Absolutely. And I mean, even physically. And physically, of course. Were you able to take all of your siblings with you to that house with your brother? So Lola was gone during that time. Um, I loaded them up and we drove all night. I didn't waste one minute. I packed up some clothes and took them to Minersville. Um, Lola was still show up. We lived in Minersville for a good six, seven months. She would still show up at random hours during the day and just walk in our house, walk in the bedrooms, go through the drawers, take whatever she wanted, dishes, recipe books. I mean, there was no respect or no. She was still our mother in her mind, you know, and she even had people in Minersville, other FLDS people watching us, which I didn't find out until later. But they actually had cameras on us and were watching us, not in the home, but like out so they could see like if we left the house. And, you know, at this point, it obviously became necessary that I have a vehicle because now I'm caring for kids. So 
my brother, Nolan, he was, I believe, 18 at this time. He was 18. He had just turned 18, but he got a vehicle and I was using his vehicle. So at this time, I did have a phone and vehicle for the six months that we lived in Mondersville. So you kind of went off on your own with the, all of your siblings. And it doesn't sound like you were really following the church rules at that time. Uh, was it that just because you were at this point, it didn't matter as much as it used to because of what you had seen being done to yourself and the, and the siblings you were just willing to do whatever it takes to protect your family at that point? I believe that that, yes, that's a very good way to describe it. But also because Lola had isolated us even from people we'd grown up with, you know, there wasn't, there was nobody to watch us or like there was nobody that we wanted to see really. I mean, we, we'd been through like horrific abuse, you know, we hadn't known them. It was common for people to just disappear out of our lives, you know, so once they did, it was just accepted. So we accepted that we were just alone. And honestly, what we'd been through, you know, we desperately needed time to heal. And, you know, the kids weren't having it. I and mean, they weren't listening to me, even though we lived in Minersville. The two girls, they were teenagers then. They were disappearing for days and nights on end. You know, I was doing the best I could to, you know, keep track of them and love them, but they'd been through too much. Like there was no way I was going to tell the caretaker or Lola. I didn't want them taken. That would, that would be the first thing they'd go to. Well, you're not doing a good enough job. So we're going to move the kids out, which is actually what it boiled down to. So the end of the six months we were there, then my brothers and their sister Leandra decided they were going to go swimming. So they went and took their, clothes off and got in the river and as bad luck would have it Lola showed up at that minute she'd come flying in she's like I I don't even remember what she came for she's like where's the kids why aren't they um I believe it was class time at that time it was like 7 30 at night why aren't they at class and Leander came into me to the back door right then and she told me that the kids were at the river and told me where they were and so I went after him and Lola came marching after me to go find him. And I became a master of playing her own game back to her, kind of manipulating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I made it sound like that I knew that they had kind of gone this way. I didn't know exactly the direction. And I sent her in an opposite direction. And then I went and got the kids. But it was enough. Lola decided that she wanted to take my, all of my siblings away. And she was going to move Rachel in the home over them after all of the abuse she had watched Rachel do, she had done. She wanted to move me out and move just Rachel in with them, wow. with my siblings. And that really was the last straw. Before we get to reuniting with your family, I wanted to quickly ask your opinion and kind of let you share with the audience. I know a lot of people ask us sometimes, why don't people go to law enforcement? when abuse is happening, when they're in these situations. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your relationship and what you thought of law enforcement was and why or why you didn't go to the police? Yes. So growing up my whole life, the police department um, in the community that I lived was FLDS and very closely knit with the leaders. So the religion came before law in every situation in the community. And so throughout the time of like being trafficked, like to Colorado, 
it did actually cross my mind that this wasn't okay and that the police needed to be involved. But my experience with the FLDS police was not good. And, you know, I was taught anybody outside the church was so much worse that I just imagined how much worse, you know, Gentile police would be. So from a young age, I was showed and, and taught to absolutely mistrust law enforcement, you know, and like during the 2008 raid, you know, CPS was like the most scary thing a child could hear. Another thing that I know we wanted to talk about, um, you had mentioned to us before off camera about the amount of education that you received as well, because that's a huge portion into why it's so hard for women and children to leave, or even though, you know, at this point, 21, well, a 21 year old adult in the outside world is going to have a certain sense of education. What was your education like at that point? And did you feel like you were even capable of being in the outside world? It was believed in the FLD and taught in the FLDS that a husband should educate his wife on sex. And that's how people were educated. So I never, because I never was married, I never was educated on, you know, human body anatomy and, you know, sex or how babies are made. I look back now, you know, when there was signs in my younger siblings of sexual abuse, but because of lack of education, I couldn't pick that up. And the internet was not available. A phone was not available. They took the phone and put a code on it. It was a restricted phone. I didn't know how to buy a vehicle. I wasn't taught to get a job. You know, I was taught I had to be a mother and a housewife. That was my duty. About what level of education do you think you received? Because I know you mentioned at some point, so they said that they were homeschooling, but what kind of education as far as like reading, writing, arithmetic, those type of things, vocabulary, do you feel like you ended up having? I believe about fourth grade. That's where I stopped like getting help with learning. I was a pretty smart kid. You know, I was handed the teacher's edition and the upper grade books and stuff. And I, I did figure out a lot of stuff. Even now, you know, I'm out after I left the church, I I got my GED, you know, so I self-educated from fourth grade, but wasn't taught anything beyond fourth. Yeah. So to try to just run away or try to go make a life for yourself must have been super scary and intimidating. Well, I didn't have the faintest idea where to even start with that. And that's just have to put a, a plug for so many of the organizations now where that help people that leave as like a foothold of somewhere to start somewhere to be able to help, you know, holding out help. We talk about a lot, giving resources to people who do leave so that they do have somewhere to start and someone to tell them this is where you should start, or this is how you get a, a GED or those type of things. So I just want to put a plug in for Absolutely. Um, in my journey of leaving, holding out help was a miracle for me. Okay. It's good to hear. Honestly, we hadn't asked, but it's good to hear <laughs> that you received help from them. That's good to know. I did. Yes. Yes. They, they helped me for a good two years before I was solid enough on my feet to start understanding, you know, making choices and me and, and my family as a whole. They were very, very supportive in our journey of healing and leaving the FLDS. It's so good to hear. So you're with your siblings in this house that you had escaped to, but you were still under the control to some extent of these caretakers, caretakers or mothers yeah. or, you know, they would still show up and try to be in charge. So 
you said the final straw was that they were going, the mothers were going to try and take you and separate you from your children or from your siblings. I'm sorry. And so what did you do when, when that happened? I was a hundred percent loss of what to do. Like I knew deep down in my heart, there was no damn way that they were going back to that. I had fought so hard for years to get them out of that. You know, I, I knew I couldn't, but, I didn't have an answer of what else to do. I went to my sister that was just younger than me in tears. And I was like, I don't know what the heck to do. She's like, you fought this long. You ain't giving up right now. And it dawned on me that I couldn't. There was no way I could quit fighting at that moment. And my youngest sister volunteered that she had been on Facebook and had found my parents' number. And it just clicked. I was like, my parents are a lot safer than what we've been through. At least if I could get them there, I could think about what needs to happen. Mm. And so I took a chance on on my own. Um, Lola literally had told me, I am moving Rachel in in the morning. And this was the evening after she had told me that. I called my mom's phone. She didn't answer. And she had a voicemail on her phone, but it had been so long since I had seen her and heard her that I wasn't 100% sure that it was her voice. I I was honestly scared you know, that I got the wrong number. So I, you know, I lost hope again. You know, I thought, well, you know, that's it. I tried, you know, but Leander's my youngest sister, Leander, she's like, well, I might figure out how to get dads. And I was like, well, I mean, at this point, what do I have to lose? You know? So she got dads and, and dad answered immediately. And the first thing I remember telling him was don't hang up, at least give me 60 seconds. Just hear me out for one minute. And he did. He's a good dad. He did listen. He didn't ask for details. He just said, I get it. Bring me the kids. I mean, at that point, they were so glad to hear from their kids. So I stayed up all night and I loaded six kids and their little bit of furniture on the back of a short bed truck. And that thing was, we stuck a twin mattress on its end on both sides and their stuff in the middle and strapped it in like a box. And we drove for 13 hours to Denver, Colorado and met them in Denver, Colorado. And I dropped them off with my parents and I went back to the FLDS and I didn't talk to my siblings. I did keep the youngest sibling with me. I honestly don't know why that decision was made other than I do know now that if I wouldn't have had something to live for, I don't know if I wouldn't have made it, you know, if I didn't have somebody to keep fighting for. You took all of your siblings except for the youngest. It was communicated with my parents. They had made that decision with me. They allowed me to keep the youngest child. I mean, at that point, he had been with me, you know, from since he was like five. You know, he's like eight now. I was the only parent he had known, really. Right. It's just so sad to think about that way. He missed so many of his years. Well, you all did miss so many years from being with your parents. It's just so sad. Absolutely. And like I mentioned before, you know, before that, my dad has left him as a one-year-old. You know, so here he's, he saw him for a minute when he was five, but now here he's eight and I still kept him. He was 10 years old before my dad actually got to raise him. And did the caretakers over you let you keep him close to you? I mean, it was a sin to take any of the kids to my parents. So I saved him according to them, but because I had made a decision on my own and ditched Lola that night so that she couldn't move Rachel in and took my siblings so I messed up their plan at that point they didn't tell me this but at that point to them I I was an apostate 
So I came back and was trying to be a part of the church, you know, the only thing I'd ever known. And everybody cut me off and nobody would talk to me. You know, I was dropped off in Cedar with this eight-year-old child not knowing how to get a job. I had to figure out how to find a job, get an apartment, figure out a phone. My brother helped me a little bit. He paid the first payment on the apartment, helped me move my stuff in. And then he just left and changed his number and cut contact off. And I had to figure out how to keep paying that and keep. So I'm glad you bring this up because this is a question we get often is if you leave, in your case, when you chose to take your siblings to your parents, which kudos to you, that is amazing that you did that. You knew that was the only chance you were going to save them from more abuse. So I'm very, very happy. And of course, you and your parents are now very happy you did that. But people always ask, if you try to go back, what happens? What's that like? If you leave the church and then try to go back, it sounds like it wasn't great. It it was impossible. I mean, to them, I was an apostate. They cut me off, you know. I mean, to me, I was trying to live the only thing I had known, you know, but they weren't making room for that at all. Wow. So they didn't welcome me back at all. Absolutely not. No. Wow. So when when you go back and they're not welcoming to you at that point, was your goal still just to get back into the church or did it ever occur to you like maybe I should go back with my parents and the siblings I dropped off? Well, I think a good analogy of that would be like we live on Earth, right? And to me, I knew nothing about space, okay? I knew nothing outside of Earth, outside the FLDS. And I'm suddenly trying to live in space, you know, they're cutting me off of Earth. I can no longer be on Earth, you know. It's it just it's a huge learning curve to learn how to breathe in space, you know, learn you automatically go back to what you know. You automatically go back to what you thought was safe, right? So that's what I did. And then from there, it was just a slow process to take those steps out into that space away from that. And it took time. It took some pretty rough experiences. So about how long was it that you moved to Cedar with your youngest brother? And how long were you in this middle ground of you're an apostate, but you don't actually want to move out with the apostates because you're trying to still be in good graces somewhat with the church or try to earn their trust back. How long were you in that middle ground? I was in Cedar City for six months. I had a six months lease. And when that was up, then I found some cousins that were somewhat in the same shoes as I was. They like transitioning from the church to leaving. Um, So I found an ally in them and they were supportive. Um, And I lived with them for about a year and a half. And So because we were somewhat on the same turf, you know, of trying to figure out life, then, you know, we were able to help each other a little bit. And then I slowly started calling my parents, talking to them. And then, you know, there just came a point where I was like, yeah, I mean, there's nothing here for me. And I'm missing out. You know, my siblings needed me in their journey of healing. And so I made the choice to go to move back in with my parents. You know, I realized Brylan needed his parents. My youngest sibling needed his parents. You know, I actually sent him back to them a couple months before I moved up with them. And then I moved up with them to Vernal, Utah, and it was a good two to three years. That's when we started getting help with holding out help. Um, And just a really slow process. I mean, I remember the first movie my mom watched. It was Inside Out, you know, and and I carefully introduced it to her because I was like, look, it's okay to feel feelings, you know. This is normal. And you know, just, it was a slow process from there to where we are today. 
I'll bet. But it just goes to show the hold that the church had on you. That even though you knew you had to get your kids out of the situation, you still couldn't step away. At least not immediately. Like you still had to hold on to what you, the only truth you knew. Right, right. Yeah. I, I mean, I had to be on earth. I mean, you know, that's the only place that there's oxygen. That's what I believed, you know, and I didn't have anybody to help me learn how to breathe in space or learn how to walk in space, you know. What was the biggest culture shock for you as you came into, as you went to space, as you come into this crazy world that you've been told is evil? What was the biggest or a few of the biggest? So I remember the first time that I put on pants and shirt and didn't wear my underwear. And I was like, man, that was weird. <laughs> but nobody could pay me to go back. <laughs> I know the feeling. And uh, for, a, for a girl, though, it must have been even that much more because you guys were wearing all sorts of other things. It's five to six layers. Yeah. I think, honestly... It was kind of exciting. You know, I, I had this time for like a year, almost two years where I isolated myself in movies, you know, and a lot of people were concerned, you know, are you okay? You know, other family that had left the church and we were starting to get to know and stuff. But I look back on that now and that was a huge cultural learning curve for me. I learned about space through those and yeah, they're movies. I realize that now, but you know, just that first introduction and, you know, I had to start on a kid level. You know, I remember watching kid series and then building up to be able to watch, you know, PG and then PG-13, you know, and I learned a lot of things w watching movies and that gave me a little bit of courage to reach out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, just to feel a little bit normal, I guess you could say, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the movies kind of gave me crazy examples, but, you know, examples of different cultures and different ideas and, you know, it was my first introduction to that. When you first moved back with your parents, um, were your parents still believing in Warren? Did you still believe in Warren just as a prophet at that time? I did not, but I didn't let my parents know because not my dad so much. My dad was absolutely supportive. By the time I moved in with him, he was with my family. He was done with the church too, but my mom was still, didn't know what she wanted or where she stood. And so... We were what she needed at that time and just supported her. And, uh, you know, it was a slow process. You know, it took me time to dare mention a movie. You know, I mentioned showing her Inside Out. You know, that was a great first movie to show her, you know, feelings are normal. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the first movie she watched. You know, that was the first step, you know, and then I dared introduce her to like Tangled, you know, and then she finally took down her pictures of Warren as soon as she started hearing more of what her kids went through and they were opening up a little bit more about the abuse and some of the things. And about a year after that, she went and did some research on the internet and that's when she really was just like, holy crap, like I'm done. You know, I am never going back. I'm never putting myself or my family back in that situation. Well, now you know why the FLDS church didn't want you to have the internet, right? <laughs> absolutely yeah there was I a reason for that. yeah <laughs> well how great that you're all together now as a family i mean you went through so much it's hard to even fathom and i know we could sit here and talk for six more hours about everything that you had to deal with and had to see your siblings go through oh yeah i feel like i just barely skimmed the top of it 
Is there anything else about your experience that you would like to share before we before we close up? There's not anything that's coming directly to mind, but I would like to say that I believe that a lot of the FLDS that the FLDS kids are still going through a lot of this. I know that there's kids in the FLDS without their parents and something has got to be done. I mean, I reported this whole story. I have journals that I kept through the time I was low with Loa reported that to the police and they've sat on that for six years. And up to this point, nothing's been done. And, you know, there needs to be some justice for kids going through it today you know, for kids that have gone through it, if not for me, at least my siblings, they deserve it. They were babies. Well, and you deserve it too, but there you go once again, being that protector. If not for me, at least for my siblings, right? That's kind of been your journey, but I agree. It's sad to hear that nothing's being done, even though the information has been turned into the authorities. So hopefully this can be a turning point and some things can start to be getting done. I, I really hope that this will help law enforcement to to maybe understand it in a little bit of depth and and at least come and talk to me about it. You know, I haven't had people actually come and I haven't had law enforcement actually take the time to listen. They've taken the evidence, you know, but up to this point, they haven't listened. So, well, we hope that spreading more awareness is a good way to start and getting people to know. We have a lot of people on our channel that ask all the time what they can do. And through all the stories of your siblings and all the people that we've interviewed about leaving, you know, just for all of our viewers, just kindness and compassion and being understanding of what these kids and these families are going through will go so far and being aware of your community and the FLDS people that might be near you and that are possibly in those same situations. So we appreciate all of our viewers' kindness and watching out for the children in your communities. Yes. Thank you all so much. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for your time. Of course. I appreciate it. Really do appreciate it. Thank you all so much for being here with us. We will talk to you all soon. Talk to you all soon.